Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. This week we celebrate Independence Day. And what better way to celebrate than to talk about religious liberty in the Supreme Court? We're joined by our colleagues today from the Office of the General Counsel, Anthony Piccarello, Mike Moses, and Hillary Burns. They're going to share their thoughts with us today about how religious freedom fared in the recently concluded term of the Supreme Court. So thank you so much all for joining us. This is great. Um, we're going to talk about three cases, focus on three cases, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, NIFLA, and the travel ban. So why don't we start with the Masterpiece case? Uh, this was this dealt with the question of religious freedom and sexual orientation non-discrimination laws. Hillary, tell us what this case was all about and what the court decided. Sure, and thanks so much for having me. So, um, so first off, the the case, just the background of it, it's about a Christian baker named Jack Phillips, and he is in the Denver, Colorado area. Um, he's been a, a baker for, um, I think, about 20, 25 years or so. And he, I think, would call himself more of a cake artist, given the kinds of designs that he makes with um, with his his cakes. Um, so he makes custom designs like being in Colorado, um, he would make if you wanted your wedding cake to be, um, you know, a camping theme, he would make that kind of a, a cake for you. And so he sees himself more, you know, as an artist than than anything, um, given the kind of custom detail that he puts on on the cakes. Um, so he makes all kinds of designs, but what he can't do is make things that go against his conscience. Being a Christian, um, he's an evangelical Christian, and he won't design, for example, cookies and things for Halloween. He won't do divorce cakes. Um, there are people who celebrate divorces mm-hmm. by creating custom cakes, so he will not engage in that or you know, lewd bachelor um, party cakes, those kind of things that, that again go against his conscience. So um, one day, when two uh, gay men came into the, the store and asked to asked Jack to create a custom wedding cake for their same sex ceremony, he again declined in conscience to create that custom cake um, for that particular event. He said he couldn't participate in that kind of event. He was willing to sell them anything else off the shelf of the store, cookies or what have you that were already made, but he couldn't in conscience uh, create a, a custom cake for a same-sex ceremony. So that was how this whole case kind of all got started because, of course, um, there was a lawsuit. Hillary, didn't he even actually have, like, hadn't they come in and this couple had come in and bought items from him before? I'm not sure if those oh, okay. particular uh, men had had been in there before, but they had heard about um, Jack and the kinds of designs that that he makes, and so um, he's well known, I think, in the Denver area for the kind of artistry that he does in his um, custom wedding cakes. I think the case uh, with the the florist in Washington State. I think the person who's the plaintiff there is someone who she had dealt with for a long time. So I think okay. that may be what you're thinking about. We'll probably have to dedicate a whole episode to that one, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. one because in that case, my understanding is that the customer did not was not the one who, who pressed the issue right it was the attorney general right. in washington yeah. so that's a that's that had was a unique a unique issue but so hillary can you tell us or any of you can speak to this um i mean who won the case how did it how did things go um what was the main argument they made the way you're talking about focusing on 
him, the focus on him as an artist was a big issue that it wasn't simply that he wouldn't sell stuff to them, that it was that he wouldn't make something, you know, use his artistic uh, abilities to contribute to a message or to, to express something he didn't want to express. So the free speech issue was the main issue. And we're talking about this as a religious liberty issue, but there was a free speech was a major component. Tell us what happened. Yeah, exactly. So there were kind of two big issues at play from a constitutional First Amendment perspective. So we had all the free speech arguments about you know, this kind of cake being expressing a message and we think of wedding cakes and the kind of um, message that can send. Actually, my own wedding cake was basically a sculpture of the U.S. Capitol building. So, um, you know, you can you can go to a, a, a wedding vendor and find all kinds of designs to suit your your personal tastes. Um, so the question of whether a cake can constitute, you know, can express a message that was definitely at play. Um, in the arguments and, and just the public discussion around this case. But then the second issue was, of course, um, free exercise of religion. And so, you know, can you, can you express your religion while you're, um, you know, operating a small business um, like Jack is? I think he had about 10 employees at the time. So um, he had a family-owned business. And so, um, you know, there were both of these issues at play. And I think a lot of the commentators thought the court was going to decide on the free speech issue, but um, but they ended up actually deciding on the free exercise issue. And what they kind of focused on was when Jack Phillips, the baker, went before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, some of the commissioners made some really disparaging comments about Jack's faith. And so um, basically likening him to um, likening his religious beliefs to defenses of slavery, as well as the Holocaust. And that was, of course, really offensive. And um, Jack Phillips, actually, I think it was his, his father helped to liberate some of the Nazi concent- concentration camps. And so, um, you know, it's just really offensive to have one's one's Christian faith, um, you know, be likened to to the Nazis, of course. <laughs> and so, um, so the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy was really upset by these kind of comparisons of um, of religion to you know the Holocaust, and so that was a really big issue. Hillary, so it sounds to me like there's a human factor involved here too. Of course, the, the, the opinion of the judges can. It sounds to me, I mean. That possibly they were swayed by, you know, these these kinds of things, the the ridiculing really of um, of Jack. So, but do you think that the Supreme Court would have decided differently if he hadn't been ridiculed, or if Jack, part of his grounds, you know, part of the argument hadn't been that this is my artistic expression? Do you think it would have changed the outcome? Oh, this is the key. This is crucial. Oh right, isn't wow! It? I hit upon <laughs> it, and I'm not even a lawyer. Know, wow. You know. Well, I think there were a couple of reasons why the court ruled ended up ruling in favor of Jack. So one thing was all the the horrible comments that were made by the Colorado Supreme or Colorado um, Civil Rights Commissioners that you know disparaged Jack for his faith, and so the hostility that Jack faced that he couldn't get a fair hearing essentially before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. But then a second element of the court's um, decision focused on the inconsistent treatment that Jack Phillips got in his case before that commission versus there there was um, an activist fellow who went to 
three secular bakers in Colorado and asked them to make cakes with anti-same-sex marriage um, messages on them. So essentially Christian cakes that were anti-same-sex marriage. And all three of those secular bakers declined in conscience to create those cakes. But then, um, you know, the, the, the Civil Rights Commission said they were fine declining in conscience for non-religious reasons. But yet, in Jack Phillips' case, he had a religious reason for objecting in conscience to create this cake in favor of same-sex marriage. And um, so Justice Kennedy and the Supreme Court looked at this dis- disparity in the treatment that Jack received compared to the uh, secular bakers. So that was just another element. So it wasn't just the awful statements, but also the um, the inconsistent treatment that Jack Phillips received. I just wonder, you know, looking ahead, how, because there was this issue of the, the, that it was seemed to be so limited to the facts and there was some, there's been some debate and analysis of the of the decision, um, you know, kind of looking ahead, I mean, how, how helpful do you think this decision will turn out, will turn out for us? Well, I think there can be some helpful effects in, in cases going forward. Um, already some cases are citing the masterpiece cake shop decision. So for example, in Philadelphia with the city cutting off foster care referrals to Catholic social services because of the church's teaching on marriage and our placement of children, um, preferably with a, with a married mother and father. Um, you know, that, that preference, of course, is now um, at odds with the city of Philadelphia, which would require us to place children in, in homes headed by same-sex couples. So, but one aspect of that case in, in Philadelphia is that the mayor there has made a series of statements against the Catholic Church and against Archbishop Chaput, who heads, um, you know, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And so he's called Archbishop Chaput's teaching on marriage, uh, not Christian. So the mayor of Philadelphia had tweeted that. So if the mayor is making decisions that go against the church, and he's expressed all this hostility against the church, then after Masterpiece, the courts can take those statements into consideration. So I think it's helpful in that context and, and the Beckett um, Fund, who's who's um, representing the Archdiocese of, of Philadelphia in that case, they have already cited Masterpiece in their, their court filings. So I think it has some helpful effects going forward. I think Justice Sotomayor even cited the Masterpiece decision in her travel ban dissent. Yeah. dissent. So it's <laughs> always interesting to... to see things go that way but um anyway let's move on to the nifla case um uh and it, like i think that from my non-lawyer perspective that it kind of had something in common with the masterpiece case and that it had to do with compelled speech uh so this this case had to do with with the speech rights of pro-life pregnancy centers in california uh mike could you walk us through what happened in this case how it was decided sure thanks Aaron. Um, yeah, California had passed a law requiring pro-life pregnancy centers to give their clients a notice, and this notice tells women that the state provides free or low-cost abortions and gives them a phone number they can call to see if they qualify. Uh, so the pro-life centers argue that this law violates their freedom of speech because it forces them 
to convey a government message about abortion. So they sued and asked the lower courts for a preliminary injunction until their case could be decided on the merits, but the lower courts refused. So the Supreme Court granted review and has now reversed. Uh, the vote was five to four. Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion, and he essentially agreed with the centers that this California law likely violates uh, the center's free speech rights exactly for the reasons they advance. It forces them to convey a government message about abortion. And so the court held the centers are entitled to a preliminary injunction. Um, the court held that this California law is especially suspect because it forces the centers to alter the content of their speech. Okay, so in other words, the centers want to talk with women about the services they provide, and those services are geared toward helping women carry their child to term. But California essentially requires them to change the subject to talk about abortion. Um, the problem with content-based laws like that is that they're often a disguise they're often a disguised way for the government to suppress unpopular unpopular ideas or to otherwise control what people uh, and institutions say. So laws like that are usually struck down unless the government can come up with some sort of special justification. Um, in this case, California argued, we can require professionals to give their clients truthful information about the services they provide, and we can require informed consent. But the court said that's no justification here. The state here is requiring the centers to give out information about abortion, which is something that the centers don't provide. They're not being required to give out truthful information about the services that they actually provide. Um, the state also argued that these notices serve a, legit, a legitimate purpose because they provide low-income women with information about state-funded abortion. Um, the court said, even if that's a legitimate interest, this law isn't tailored to achieve that result because, for one thing, it applies only to pro-life pregnancy centers and most other health facilities are exempt. Uh, second, there are other ways to inform women about abortion. Uh, the state can post its own notices or engage in a public information campaign. So since the state failed to show any special justification for this content-based law, uh, the court uh, in, issued the preliminary or ordered that the uh, preliminary injunction be issued to the pregnancy center. Um, the court did one other thing. Um, California had required unlicensed pro-life centers to give their clients a notice saying that they aren't licensed to provide medical services, but there wasn't any evidence that women are confused about what pro-life pregnancy centers actually do. So the court once again concluded that there wasn't any justi justification for that requirement either. And even if there was uh, some reason, it would still violate the free speech clause. It targets pro-life pregnancy centers, and it imposes a government script and it operates in a way that drowns out the center's own message. So for all those reasons, uh, the court uh, held that that too should be preliminarily enjoined. Um, so this case is an important win for free speech, and it's an important win for the pro-life pregnancy center. I think on that, the bit about drowning out the message uh, was at least, 
I, I didn't follow this case quite as closely as some of the other ones, but one of my the, my understandings of it was that one of these notifications had to be displayed in so many languages that it would take up, I mean, even just a very short message um, right. that one of these sinners wanted to, to provide, they, then this other disclosure has to accompany it in, in so many languages that right. you, it would look like that's, that was, I mean, it essentially functions as an advertisement for, for the very service that they are hoping that, that they are trying to provide an alternative to. Yes, that's right. Now, for instance, if the uh, pro-life pregnancy centers wanted to post a two-word note, uh, uh, put up a two-word bulletin board saying, choose life, that would have to be accompanied by this notice that I described in as in up to as many as 13 different languages, uh, languages common to the area, to the county where uh, the, the billboard is being posted. And so the court was struck by how ludicrous that is. You know, and as you say, it's just drowning out the choose life message, surrounding it by all this information about abortion in up to 13 different languages. And that just struck the court, I think, as just being too ludicrous to, to pass muster under the free speech clause. And, you know, you say that it uh, affected these, it seemed to only affect the pro life pregnancy centers. And so I wonder, I mean, this is another way that it seems like there was some similarity with the Masterpiece case. There was a, there was some evidence of hostility towards towards this a particular view. I mean, was that a similar dynamic? Was there was it was there a sense that these particular pregnancy centers were being unfairly targeted? Right. And in fact, um, that's an interesting point because uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, the day before his retirement, uh, issued a concurring opinion in this case, saying that not only is this law content-based, but it seems to uh, discriminate on the on the basis of viewpoint, which is another thing that gets court's attention and usually results in a, in a law being invalidated. Uh, it's viewpoint-based because it only uh, reflects the pro-choice side. It doesn't reflect the pro-life side. Mm-hmm. And so even if California were to uh, broaden this law, let's say it came back with legislation requiring everybody to provide this sort of notice, that wouldn't necessarily save it from being invalidated if you follow Justice Kennedy. I wonder, I mean, if, if, if all of you or any of you could comment on this, I mean, just in terms of looking ahead again, like how well this, these, these decisions help us, I mean, you know, you see this evidence in some states or in some places of, of hostility towards faith-based organizations, um, faith-based service providers. I mean, do you think that this, I mean, do these decisions kind of help us out in that in this regard? Or will, will some of these governments just be careful, uh, be a little more careful, cautious? I think the answer is both, and that that's not a bad thing. So, um if they are deterred from being as overt about it, even if they have the same hostility in their heart of hearts, um, the bare fact that they'll be expressing it less, even though it shores up their legal position, is actually a good thing. It's a good thing for the culture, I think, for people of faith to be less frequently maligned as bigots. Uh, I think it's been sort of a poison in our culture in recent years for people of faith to be maligned as bigots, to be compared to racists, to be compared to Nazis. Um, and so that may end up being a bit of a disadvantage on certain legal theories when you're challenging it. But 
that doesn't mean it's not a good thing. I mean, there, there, it's, the other thing is that, uh, again, some of this is uh, might might chill some of this hostile speech, uh, at least by government officials when they're taking action, adverse action. The other thing is that it will cause them to think more carefully about um, if the shoe were on the other foot. So I think the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is, is really strong on this. Again, the concurrence in NIFLA is strong on this. Um, the concurrence in Masterpiece Cake Shop, I think, by Justice Gorsuch is really a, a home run on this question. Um, there, the focus is not so much on the, the angry speech component, but on the differential treatment component. And in comparing um, how the Colorado Commission dealt with Jack Phillips's case versus the case brought by the activists in the other uh, instances, and it is very, very carefully done, that, that Gorsuch opinion, and, and sort of um, making clear that there is differential treatment when you do a fair apples-to-apples apples comparison, uh, taking all those circumstances into account. Well, looking forward, that kind of an analysis is going to matter a lot in shaping the behavior of government agencies making these decisions. Not only are they going to watch their words, and so put less poison into the culture, good thing, but they're going to think to themselves, well, uh, if I'm going to censor or somehow suppress or limit um, this expression by people who hold a, a view in favor of um, uh, marriage as we've always known it, or uh, uh, in favor of, um, you know, against abortion or, or what have you, they're going to realize that there's a high cost to doing that because they're going to need to be equally willing to, um, you know, suppress the opposite view. So that's, um, again, that, that's sort of one of the um, themes that can kind of tie this together in, in terms of the, the positive impact in the future. Well, um, speaking of this issue of, of hostility to, to religion, uh, another big case that we were watching was the one on the travel ban, which some people call the Muslim ban. That's one of the arguments is that due to the way the president uh, spoke about Muslims in the campaign, uh, that, that there was evidence of hostility there. Uh, can you just, Anthony, talk a little bit about, about what happened in this case, uh, what the court's decision was? Um, yeah, what, what is your comment there? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, especially during the 2016 presidential campaign, but also to some extent into the early days of the administration, uh, the president expressed a lot of uh, hostility to uh, Islam and made specific reference to a Muslim ban. That, that was sort of his term. Um, the decision uh, of the majority in this case includes some of those facts, but actually if you look in the dissent in Justice Sotomayor's opinion starting around page four or so, um, there's kind of a, a fuller account. And it's it's ugly stuff. Um, it is at the barest minimum overbroad. You know, speaking in, in very negative terms about Islam generally, Muslims generally, and so forth. Uh, and it's tied <clears throat> as well specifically to the idea of taking governmental action to exclude Muslims. It's not just abstract hostility. Um, <clears throat> and then, excuse me, <clears throat> within a week uh, of um, his taking office, President Trump issued uh, a travel ban um, that was closer to neutral on its faith with, with respect to religion. And in fact, in every later iteration, had less and less explicit reference to religion um, to the point where it was 
by the end, at least on its face, neutral with respect to religion. Uh, it was close to it to begin with, but it was all the way there by the end. But within a week, and, and in the context of all these hostile expressions, um, we have uh, an order that uh, operated against predominantly Muslim countries, and only predominantly Muslim countries, but against the backdrop of all these expressions of hostility to Islam. So that was challenging court. Uh, it made its way up to the Supreme Court actually in September of last year. We filed an amicus brief uh, with the Supreme Court at that time. Um, but then due to one of the changes in the order that was issued, the court said, well, we're not going to appeal this order that's now been essentially retracted and replaced. We're going to send it back down to the lower courts and they'll examine that that successor order. So that eventually found its way back up. And so we filed a substantially similar brief. Um, when it came up a second time. Uh, and the gist of it is this. Um, there, are, there are a lot of details in the brief, but, but if I had to sum it up, and it's akin to what we were talking about a few minutes ago before, um, imagine the shoe on the other foot, right? I mean, imagine if, if a president in a, in a future time um, was campaigning in some way on express hostility to, to Catholics. Uh, and then, uh, soon after taking office, took some action that was adverse to Catholics in precisely the area campaigned upon. Um, we would, we would be concerned about that. We'd be very concerned about that from a religious freedom perspective. And again, particularly from that component of the free exercise clause that prohibits targeting on the basis of religion. Um, now again, I, I'm speaking of this in future oriented terms, like, gee, imagine if this were to happen to us in the future. But the truth of the matter is, and this is another thing that we talk about in our brief, um, we've been on the other side of this before, um, even even particularly in the context of migration, where you know um, our religious identity was Catholics was uh, the, the basis, the cited basis for exclusion of Catholic migrants, uh, and you know, Castle of Menace, all the sort of the nest cartoons and all the kind of cultural environment that gave rise to them and made them legitimate that they that they fed and so forth. Um, so we've seen this before. Uh, our our services uh, to, uh, among others, refugees include services to Muslims, uh, and we we serve them as we serve other people as well. And so we're also concerned about them in terms of their humanitarian humanitarian plight. Um, so there there are all kinds of issues uh, that were of concern to the bishops, uh, and that informed the amicus brief that we filed again twice. Um, and so we have this result. Um, closely divided court, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, took up the religious freedom question as a matter of the Establishment Clause rather than the Free Exercise Clause, which has been a concern to us throughout these cases. We've, we've raised, um, again, our, our brief suggested that it ought to be addressed as a matter of free exercise rather than establishment. Uh, the court really didn't... Um, can, I just, can I just interrupt real quick, just, sure. to, just for the people who don't, um, who are, for our listeners who don't, know what of, the establishment they, yeah, clause is? I was just going to ask they, that question. Yeah, they don't live and breathe this stuff. Like, <laughs> right. what is the distinction there? Sure. And, and maybe if you don't mind even saying a little bit about why it matters yeah. so much to us, because because yeah. it is like a kind of an issue. Okay, so um, the, the First Amendment um, says that government shall make uh, no law um, restricting the, uh, the free exercise of religion or... Um, or respecting an establishment of religion. And so 
Uh, those are two distinct clauses in in the First Amendment, which are together referred to as the religion clauses, uh, and sometimes are applied together, but um, usually are thought of as, as embodying distinct protections. Uh, free exercise usually is thought of as a prohibition against government restrictions on religious exercise, as the, the name and language of it suggests, as well as prohibition against um, governmental discrimination based on religion. The Establishment Clause is sometimes is, is more often thought of as a restriction on what government can do in, as it were, behaving like a church itself. Not so much in terms of its restrictions on private religious exercise, but in terms of the government engaging in religious exercise itself in a way that um, it shouldn't um, under our uh, constitutional arrangement. Um, so most often the Establishment Clause is... Uh, is invoked in situations involving things like Ten Commandments monuments or um, uh, you know crash displays on city hall. It also involves concern about governmental funding of religious uh, activities, uh, of private religious activities. So things like uh, school voucher disputes are generally addressed under the Establishment Clause. Uh, often the Establishment Clause has been characterized as embodying so-called separation of church and state. Um, and that's a, a problematic, um, characterization of just that clause. And usually it's that language is used in order to, um, emphasize the exclusion of religion from public life. And in a way that's, that's been a big problem for us in the Catholic community for a long time. There's a way to understand that phrase properly, uh, separation of church and state, but particularly when it's limited to what the Establishment Clause is designed to enforce, then that's what gives us some grief. Um, So in this case, what we have is a concern about discrimination based on religion, which is overwhelmingly, though not exclusively, addressed under the Free Exercise Clause. Um, It's a matter of our First Amendment jurisprudence. There are a couple of cases under the Establishment Clause that are um, religious discrimination cases, but not mostly. And um, it's... Also, uh, again, we don't have a problem here of a uh, the state behaving like a church, right? We don't have the problem of the state sort of usurping uh, appropriate roles left to the church in the, in, in private action. Um, so it seemed appropriate to make clear that this ought to fall in the line of the anti-discrimination principle against private religious action versus the sort of... Uh, uh, state overstepping in terms of behaving more like a religious institution. So um, that's been sort of a theme in in our in our filings. Um, it just it's it's just a matter of making sure that the, that the doctrines uh, are kept clear as a jurisprudential matter. Um, and that's the that's the main that's the main concern associated with it. So that just with that kind of a little divergence, I, I, I do think that's an important kind of clarification, but. Um, one of the interesting things about the ultimate disposition of this case by the majority was that it um, not only did it not address whether this should be taken up differently as a matter of free exercise versus establishment, um, it kind of suggested that because what we're dealing with here generally is an area where um, under our separation of powers, the president has plenary control, very, very uh, strong authority to act. Uh, particularly in terms of the admission or exclusion of foreign nationals and questions of national security. 
in that realm generally, um, the president has a lot of authority. And if the judiciary steps in and starts uh, second-guessing a lot of those decisions, then it sort of tends to disrupt that separation of powers. Well, how does that separation of powers and deference to the president find expression in this case? Um, the way the majority had it was, they said, well, they've raised this Establishment Clause argument. Here are the facts, again, in very summary form. They didn't get into a lot of the other details. Uh, here are the facts. But because we're dealing with this realm of admission of foreign nationals and national security, we're not going to apply the analysis we would otherwise apply under the Establishment Clause. We're going to defer a lot. Uh, and we're going to apply what's called rational basis scrutiny, which is the lowest level of constitutional scrutiny there is. All the government needs to do is provide some plausible basis for what it is that it's doing, and then the courts will say, okay, fine. Um, and that's that's what the majority opinion did. Uh, that, in in my view, is, is um, both disappointing and concerning for the future, um, and for similar reasons. Uh, basically, what, what I had thought might happen in addition to... Um, I mean, it was, it was a bit of a long shot because the party controlled the issues uh, that the court would present it with an Establishment Clause issue instead take it up as a free exercise question. That was unlikely, but it was important to say. Um, but what we thought might happen was that the court would take into account the president's authority in this area uh, in applying strict scrutiny to these facts. Say, look, there is religious discrimination going on here. There is targeting going on here. And if they were going to uphold it, say, that's because the government has made an especially strong showing that that's warranted in this case. Um, of course, I'm not sure that it actually is, and I think it would have been best if, if that last part of the conclusion had not been reached and said that the, that the discrimination isn't warranted. But at least if the analysis involved that do uh, judicial scrutiny in an area where uh, our first freedom is involved, I, I would feel more, more comfortable about it. The fact that there's been just this sort of hands-off uh, with respect to even religious freedom, simply because what's being discussed is a matter of uh, entry of foreign nationals or national security, really worries me. Because that scenario that we raised from the outset, you know, what if the shoe were on the other foot? That could still happen. That could still happen. If, if what you're talking about is the area, if, if what is invoked is a rationale of national security, what is invoked is, is uh, a, you know, something associated with a migration, where, again, we've been there before, um, then it sounds like the courts are going to keep their hands off and they're not going to examine closely those claims that national security is really at stake, that really fundamentally we're talking about something terribly important in terms of excluding people who may mean us harm. They're not going to do that scrutiny. And because that scrutiny isn't there, um, you run the risk that in the future, the, you know, national security is just going to get invoked cheaply and deferred to easily. Uh, that's the that's the scary scenario for us going forward. Do any of our other lawyers care to, care to comment? I mean, one other question I'll throw out there, too. You can comment on this or, or one other question I have about this case is just if any one of you cares to comment on why the opponent's um, ban did went the Establishment Clause route instead of the free exercise route. So that's anyone can take up this question or any other comments you want to make about 
travel ban, any other or any of the other cases? Yeah, I mean, one of the commentators that I've seen on the travel ban decision has talked about how you know the case is now going to go back to the lower courts um, to look at both the free exercise and even the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, claim because RFRA would apply to the federal government. So there may still be a chance for the um, opponents of the travel ban to, you know, prove that this violates religious freedom. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious as to. Yeah. I, I, well, I, that is true. So in as much as the free exercise clause wasn't addressed and the RIFRA claim wasn't addressed, uh, that, that could go, uh, could be addressed on remand. But the concern that I have is that the rationale of the majority opinion is such that those things are going to be analyzed with that same deferential mindset. So in other words, under the Establishment Clause theory that they had, strict scrutiny ought to have applied. Under free exercise, strict scrutiny ought to have applied. Um, they're both constitutional principles that, at least on the, the rationale of the majority, it seems, would be um, basically applied weakly uh, and without the same teeth because of the context in which they rise, because it's admission of foreign nationals, because it's national security. So I, it's true that those questions could come up, but um, I... I would imagine that um, the government's going to raise and the courts are likely to accept the argument that, well, you know, uh, the, 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 the overall environment of this is going to cause us to exercise uh, rational basis scrutiny. So, so can I just yeah. clarify, because I'm still, I, I thought I knew what the decision was, but now yeah. I'm a little confused. So yeah. what actually is the effect of the Supreme Court's decision in this case? So the, the, travel, the challenges to the travel ban are rejected, um, at least on the, the basis presented. Uh, that went to the court. There were also some statutory questions that we didn't we didn't address. So basically, the, the people who were challenging were also saying, well, that you know the the immigration laws uh, make it so that this should not have been issued, and it was it violated the, the statutes as they are. The, all those arguments were rejected. Um, then the only constitutional question that was taken up was the establishment clause question, um, and basically said, well, we're gonna we're gonna send this back down for what else may remain. And again, it's theoretically possible that there, that there will be some challenges. Um, back down, you mean the Supreme Court is going to is throw it back to the, a lower court? Yeah. So there is there is a a, a, a remand component of this. Um, but actually, just kind of to speak to your question about why why they might have raised the establishment clause rather than the free exercise clause, I think some of that is frankly politics, just pure politics. Um, I think the folks who uh, in general, the folks who are uh, litigating about this um, tend to be overall leaning to the left. Um, and in that environment, um, there's a lot greater comfort with potentially expanding establishment clause jurisprudence and a lot of fear about expanding free exercise jurisprudence. Um, and I think that it just was kind of, um, you know, the, the, the rationale some of the reasoning ought to be the same, but you know the, the way courts have divided this up over time, the trend is clearly that religious discrimination cases are free exercise, uh, religious governmental restrictions based on religion, free exercise, uh, government behaving as a religion, that's establishment, and it would just be better to keep that cleaner rather than to muck it up. And uh, again, I think just the politics are such that um, folks are pressing this. They didn't care as much about that jurisprudential tidiness, and they, they cared more about constituencies and who would support the effort. 
Well, um, you know, I, I think we're about at the end of our time, but I just I don't think that we can let a Supreme Court roundup go by without at least mentioning the fact that there's a vacancy. I mean, I think some people listening to this are, you know, it's kind of the elephant in the room. Um, why, how, why did that happen, Aaron? Did, did <laughs> Justice Kennedy retire? Yeah, so Is Justin, that what happened? Justice Kennedy retired. Oh, um, I thought I heard about that. And so, uh, does do any of you want to comment on that? Um, are any of you candidates to fill the vacancy? I wonder. Oh, uh, any, any, that would be fun. Yeah, actually, yeah. you don't even actually have to be a lawyer to be a Supreme Court justice, do you? Right? Uh oh. Uh oh. I think you do. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to be a sitting judge. You can be a law professor. There are sometimes uh, senators who have been appointed to the court. I think they are always judges. I don't know of any. I'm I'm sorry. Always lawyers. I don't know that there are any non-lawyers that have ended up in that spot. But I know that there are uh, folks who haven't been practicing law for a long time, or maybe not at all. You know, folks who have just been academics, for example, legal academics their entire career, or politicians their entire career. But anyone, anyone contact any of you to, about uh, some behind the scenes? <laughs> I would just say God uh, help nice. whoever no. it is and their family. And yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a rough process. Mm-hmm. You yeah. need to pray for them. Yeah. Everyone involved. <laughs> well, that's a good note to end on. Always a good note to end on prayer. So, so we'll pray for um, all the decision makers on this and and um, hope for the best. So thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us um, as we're getting ready to head into the holiday. I uh, hope everybody enjoys your 4th of July. Uh, this is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <music>